When you hear the phrase, the good life, what comes to mind for you? Often it's doing things that we enjoy, usually in a setting that we like or with people whom we enjoy as well. Maybe it's being at the beach, maybe it's reading a great book with a good cup of coffee, a meal with great friends, whatever it may be, I'm sure for all of us when we think of the good life, something comes to mind. Now, when I think of that, I don't immediately think about money. Maybe you do. No judgment if you do. I just realized that that's not the first thing that comes into my mind, but I was surprised to see that this is actually part of what defines the good life, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It says that the good life is the kind of life that people with lots of money are able to have. It's telling, isn't it? The example it gives is she grew up poor, but now she's living the good life. I think it's interesting that if we step back and think about our ideas of the good life, money is related to it, isn't it? Money is what makes us able to enjoy many of those things. They're profoundly interconnected, even if that's not what first comes to our mind. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to warn us about the subtlety of the interconnectedness of those things and to help us see how we can think foolishly, very easily, about our wealth and about our possessions. And when we do, we find ourselves actually robbed of the good life altogether. And so our passage this morning is found in Luke chapter 12. We've been looking at parables in Matthew. Now we are looking at some in Luke We're going to be Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. If you didn't bring one, uh, there are pew Bibles on the back of the pew in front of you. It'll be on page 871, and it's also printed on your uh, bulletins on page 8, but you may be fanning yourself with those. And so let me read Luke 8, or sorry, Luke 12, starting in verse 13. This is God's word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brothers to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray one more time and ask his help as we hear it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come to you weak and needy. We're in desperate need of your grace this morning that you would meet us with words of life, that you would strengthen our faith, 
that you would lift our eyes from the things that so often distract our hearts from you, from those cares of this world that, that pull us away and lure us in. We pray that you would humble us this morning, that we would be open to hear the loving rebuke of your word, of the subtlety of the foolishness that creeps into our hearts. We pray, too, that you would comfort us, strengthen us with the beauty of your gospel and the riches that we have in the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we will look at uh, this section in three points. First, we'll consider the teaching about riches. Second, we'll consider the warnings about riches. And then finally, we'll consider the gospel, the way of gospel generosity, the way of gospel generosity. So first of all, let's consider the teaching about riches. Luke 12.1, which kind of gives us the context of what's going on, tells us that Jesus has been primarily uh, speaking to teach his disciples. But as he's teaching his disciples, a huge crowd, thousands of people, Luke said, have gathered to listen in. And this parable comes in the setting of being a response to a man's request. A man in the crowd calls out, essentially in the middle of Jesus' teaching. The the feeling is that he interrupts, even though the language doesn't specifically tell us that. But he has a question. More likely, he has a command, really, is what's going on here. He wants Jesus' help in an inheritance dispute with his brother. Now, inheritance disputes were common in Jesus' day. Part of the reason for that is it's much more likely that you would inherit wealth than that you'd be able to make large sums of wealth on your own, as as we're more accustomed to in the way our economy works. And so um, inheritance matters were very serious. That's where most of your wealth would be found. It's also understandable that this man would come to a religious leader for help. That can sound strange to us. Why is this man bringing what we would think of as a legal matter to Jesus? But for the Jews, legal matters were also religious matters, right? As the law of Moses is what adjudicated many of these things. And so going to teachers of the law to say, how does this apply in this situation is something that overall is right and fitting to do. But don't miss what this man is asking. He's not asking Jesus to mediate, is he? He is saying, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's telling Jesus to use his authority as a good rabbi so that this man can get what he wants, so that his brother would go about dividing up the inheritance differently. And it's likely, we're not, we're not sure, but it seems as though this is probably the younger brother in the family. And the older brother uh, was entitled to a greater share of the inheritance, and the older brother probably wanted to keep the property, keep the inheritance intact. This way it retains more value for the family. This way it's able to produce more crops for them all to survive. But this younger brother was entitled to a share And he wanted that share now, which would probably involve dividing up the property and even selling his part of it. And so all of this helps us understand then Jesus' abrupt response, doesn't it? 
He says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? I'm absolutely amazed over and over again with Jesus' brilliance with people. A man comes to him with a request, which is actually a veiled command, and rather than getting pulled into it, Jesus can see the heart behind it. The man's inheritance desire is really just a symptom of something far deeper, a heart that does not operate according to kingdom riches. And so Jesus says he won't be involved in this, but then uses it as an opportunity to continue to teach his disciples as the crowds listen in. And this parable then exposes the foolishness of the man's heart that underlies the request that he had. And so let's think about the parable for a moment. The parable is about a rich man. That detail is so important, and I'm amazed how much I just skipped over it. Being a rich man means he is already wealthy, right? He already has plenty to survive. That's essential for understanding the story. And then in verse 16, we find that his land produced abundantly. This rich man finds that he has a bumper crop when the harvest time comes. And this creates a dilemma for him. What should he do with this bumper crop? What should he do with his abundance? For him, the question immediately goes to, how am I going to store all of this stuff? And then he comes up with his solution. Build bigger barns. (laughs) If that's the problem, I need more space to store stuff, then that makes a lot of sense. And then, upon building more barns, bigger barns, he will live off of and enjoy what he has. Verse 19 says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. There's an abundance there. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But then God enters the scene and speaks into it and tells us that this man has been a fool. This very night, his life is going to end, and what he thought would bring him abundance, all that he has stored up, will do nothing for him. And so we can see that this is Jesus teaching us about riches. And as we consider that, it's really important to see how he begins this. He says, take care, be on guard. Those words we can hear, take care, and we can think, oh, see you later, take care. But, but really it's watch out, be fully aware of this, guard yourself carefully when it comes to riches and possessions. And through this parable, he wants us to see what we need to be on guard against, these subtle, foolish ways of viewing riches that creep into our hearts. But I think it can be really tempting to hear stories like this and say, well, thankfully, I'm not really rich, so I'll just check back in at the Lord's Supper. Craig, you can just keep talking up there for a little while, but uh, I'm not really rich anyways. Well, um, it is true that there is probably always someone richer than us. Uh, I don't think the wealthiest person here is attending, or wealthiest person in the world is attending today. So in that sense, there's always someone richer than us. But 
most of us would fall into the category of being rich, especially when we think of the standards of Jesus' day. Most of the non-rich people were pretty much living day to day with hardly any opportunity to change that situation. And most of us are, are not typically in that situation day in and day out. But even if we are, it's helpful to remember who Jesus is addressing. This isn't a message to Wall Street. Jesus isn't down in Jerusalem talking to the day traders, the rich day traders, uh, not the non-rich ones. He is warning non-rich disciples, and he is warning the non-rich crowd about these things. You see, foolishness about money doesn't begin in your heart when your bank account reaches a certain level or when your portfolio has grown to a certain amount. What Jesus wants us to understand is it is a danger that is present long before the windfall, long before the bumper crop. And it's possible not to be rich and to still be foolish about riches because it's a danger that affects more than just money. It's a danger that affects how we view all of our stuff. Money is really at the center of a web of all kinds of things, isn't it? We think about time, and what do we say? Time is money. We think of vacations or trips. They require money. We think about retirement. It involves money. We think about a lifestyle we would like to live. We think of our home being a certain way, an image that we maintain, a social network that we have, the things that we like to eat, our cars, our clothing, our food, our toys, our gadgets. All those things are on the web, but what is at the center? Money riches affects all of those things. You may lead a very simple life here this morning, but what you are expecting from your stuff and how your stuff shapes you is what Jesus wants all of us to consider. And while in this parable, it's the end of the story for the man, isn't it? This night your soul is required for you. There's really good news this morning. We haven't reached the end of the story yet. There is time for repentance and faith and change. And Jesus invites us into that as he has us consider our riches this morning. So what does Jesus want us all to consider when it comes to our possessions? Well, that brings us to our second point, the warnings about riches the warnings about riches. And and there are really three warnings um, here that I just want to highlight this morning in this picture that he gives us of what it means to be on guard against the subtlety of thinking foolishly about riches. Three things to be aware of. First, beware of insatiable desire. Beware of insatiable desire. Jesus is not saying that all money or all possessions are inherently wrong. In verse 15, he makes it very clear. It says, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Ken Bailey translates covetousness as insatiable desire. And I think that really captures it well. The man in the parable was rich. 
He already had everything he needed to survive. But when the land produced a bountiful crop, what options came to his mind? And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Uh, A bishop in church history, Ambrose, he um, had lived a former wealthy life and then had been converted to the things of God. And one of the things that he said is there is there are plenty of places to store your wealth in the mouths of the poor. And I think that's really interesting as it just highlights for him there's only one problem at hand. I need bigger barns. There was only one direction for his money to go. It has to come in and he needs more of it. Obviously, he says, I don't have enough. Obviously, I need more. So there's only one solution. Build bigger barns. You see, what's so dangerous, I think, about covetousness is that it initially presents itself as wisdom, doesn't it? It's good and it's wise to manage your money well, to store up, to save, to plan ahead. Proverbs teaches us that. Planning ahead and storing and saving our money is biblical. But like most things that harm us and most things that will destroy us, it's a half-truth. Covetous promises a half-truth. It doesn't say enough. Saving is wise. Having is good. But when is it enough? And covetousness, insatiable desire says, never I still need more. And so Jesus calls us, first of all, to beware when our heart says, this is good, therefore more will be better. When we hear that, alarm bells should begin to be going off in our hearts. So beware of insatiable desire, and then Jesus warns of another subtle distortion. Beware of ownership confusion. Beware of ownership confusion. Again, the way Jesus tells this story is absolutely brilliant. The man speaks to himself. Uh, we, we took a vacation a few weeks ago, and so my family has spent more time around me. And one of the things that they notified me of is that I speak to myself a lot. And um, I think it's a great thing. They think it's strange. Maybe you do this as well. But Jesus here, I think while picking up on something that we all do, he's also using it as a literary device. Because what it does is we hear this man speak to himself. We get to hear his innermost thoughts. We hear what's going on in his soul as he considers his wealth. It's revealing and it's not pretty, is it? Did you hear the pronouns he uses? It would be hard to tell or to write this story with more mys and eyes. (laughs) He, in his short monologue with himself, he has five mys. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. And he has six eyes. I will do, I will do this, I will tear down, I will build up, I will store, I will say. His perception is that all of this is his, and he must decide what to do with it. So not only do we sometimes start to say, of course I need more, but Jesus also warns us of when we start to find ourselves saying, of course this is mine. 
Jesus beautifully tells the story in a way that shows the reality that's far different from this man's perception. In verse 16, it's so subtle, but it kind of hits you in the face. It says, verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. It says nothing about his ingenuity with irrigation or farming. It's a subtle way of saying that God caused the land to produce abundantly. Psalm 104, 14, you, speaking of the Lord, caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth from the earth. The land producing plentifully means God gave this rich man a surplus. But it's not just the land and these crops that are God's. The biggest surprise in this story comes at the end. Verse 20, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Soul here is more than just the immaterial part of him. It's it's really used here as a synonym for, for his whole life. And God says that this night, his very soul, his whole life is required of him. Now, we may not catch that right away, but that's actually technical language of paying back a loan. It's loan language. You have borrowed something, man, and now it's time to pay up. Your soul, your life has been on loan to you from God, and now it has come to, you, come to an end. And so in contrast to this rich man's perception of that everything was his, we find out that the reality is everything in the story, his surplus and his soul, turns out to be from God, on loan to him as gifts. And the parable asks us to consider this. How do you, in your innermost being, think of or speak about your stuff. I don't think this means we can't say I or my, although we might not want to repeat it as much as this man does. It's just kind of boring. And this isn't saying that we just need to speak in convoluted ways and always add the phrase when we're talking that the Lord has given this for me to steward temporarily. But what it does mean is that we need to be careful that when we are saying my time, my money, my house, that we in our hearts know and remember that although that's a nice handle for those things, they're not ultimately ours, but have been given to us to steward. So Jesus tells us to beware of insatiable desire, beware of ownership confusion. And finally, we come to the promise that is underneath it all. Beware of the promise of abundant life. Beware of the promise of abundant life. This man's inner dialogue reveals the goal of this abundance, why he needs to have bigger barns to keep all this stuff. Verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The fundamental flaw in his thinking is that abundance of possessions will lead to abundance of life. That the reason that he can relax and eat and drink and be merry, which we see even as 
um, a command for everyone, an invitation for everyone in Ecclesiastes. But for him, where it goes so faulty is the reason he would be able to do that is because he would have enough stuff. Then he can, if he just gets enough, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus succinctly calls this out in his warning when he says, be on your guard against all covetousness. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. True life, quality life, the good life is not attained through having lots of stuff. Now, this story doesn't unpack all of the details of this man's existence. Jesus doesn't tell him about, or tell us about his siblings or anything like that. But what it does is it leaves us with this poignant, powerful image of what results when we buy into this empty promise of abundance, abundant life through abundance. The man in the story is left talking to himself and then he dies. It seems like there's really no one else in the story for him to talk to. He's not going to his friends, to his relatives, to the people at the gate to say, I have this surplus, what do I do? He is there alone talking to his soul. And then remember the brother who asked the question at the um, beginning of the story. He's on the precipice of ending his life the same way, of his life coming into an end in the same way. Think about it. If he's able to convince his brother to divide up the inheritance, then all that binds them together as brothers is no longer together. (laughs) And think of where the relationship already is as this man is coming, trying to force Jesus to tell his brother to do what he wants with the money. Do you think they have a good relationship? No. And if he gets Jesus, if he can find someone to back him up that this gets divided, he will go his way with his older brother hurt financially and scorned relationally. And this man, like the prodigal son, could leave with his share, money in his hand, but empty in soul. And so both of these are this powerful picture of how wealth promises a life of abundance but it brings emptiness. It says it will fulfill, but it divides. And so we've seen these warnings about wealth that Jesus gives in these amazing pictures, but what can we do instead? And that brings us to our third point, the way of generosity, the way of generosity. If we step back for a moment and just think of the flow of the story, It's that these goods are given by God, but they are seen as the man's own goods. And then they are stored up in the belief that from the abundance of these goods, he will have the abundant life. And then what happens in the story, the goods are left when his life is over. But Jesus invites us to a different way, a different flow to the story. Goods given by God but instead received as a gift from him. And rather than being stored, they are given. Verse 21 ends this section by saying, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward 
God. I think that's really strange. (laughs) When I read it, I don't expect it to say that, even though I've been reading it all week. I still expect it to say, and is not rich toward others, or doesn't give his money away. But this says, says rich toward God because it's so much bigger than that. And I want us to consider just two questions of, uh, about this phrase, rich toward God. What does it mean and why does it work? First of all, what does this mean? We know from Scripture God doesn't need anything, does he? Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12, every beast of the forest is his, the cattle on a thousand hills, the world and its fullness, all his doesn't need anything. But even though God owns it all, Jesus says that we can be rich toward him with all that we have. Just because we don't ultimately own anything doesn't mean we can't be generous with it. We see this idea illustrated with young children, if you think about it. They live in a world where nothing is really their own. They may say, mine, a lot. But who bought those things? Did they? No, not, not usually. But they can still be generous even though they don't own those things, can't they? How sweet is it when a child takes their toy that they didn't purchase and shares it with another child when they come over to play? Or they bring their favorite blankie that someone made for them to comfort a child who is lonely or sad. Many of us have been on the receiving end of a young child. Maybe it's been in Sunday school, maybe it's in your family or a relative, taking paper that they didn't purchase, crayons they didn't buy, colored pencils and staples and, and tape, none of which they purchased. But they sit down and diligently they color and glue and tape and fold. Why? to give a a picture of a flower or to make an airplane, taking what is not ultimately really theirs and using it generously to give blessing to the very giver of those things. You see, Jesus is telling us we were created to be rich toward God. His solution is far bigger than just saying, just give part of what you have to other people. Make sure there's some sort of outflow. But the remedy for insatiable desire for wealth is generosity back to the one who has given it all to us. And so the question we find ourselves asking then is, God, how can I use what you have given me? All that you have given me. Everything in that web we talked about. How can I use that for you? Or theologically, we would say, for your glory. Or as here Jesus would say, generously toward God. So that's what it means. Taking what we've been given, uh, receiving it with thanks, and giving it to the Lord for his glory, using it for him. But why does it work this way? You know, this is really a lot deeper than just a wise principle about money. We, we could come to this as it's just, oh, cool, another financial textbook or something. But it goes so much deeper than that. Why does it work this way? Well, one reason is we were created by a God who gives. 
We were created by a God who gives. All throughout the scriptures, we learn that God is rich. He owns everything. And yet what's so amazing is he is completely uncorrupted by his riches, isn't he? He's not foolish with all the things that he has. But what does he do with what he has as the one who owns it all? He gives. He sends the sun and rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. James 1.17 says he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And you see, as those who were created in God's image, we were made to give like he gives. Not as those who ultimately own it, but as those who have been given by these things. So that in that, we can know the joy of what it is to be like God in his generosity. To reflect him with how we use our possessions. You see, part of the reason that this works really in real life is because this is how God is. This is how he's made us. And this is how a world that's been made by him works. But generosity goes far deeper than just giving and receiving stuff. As we close, we can just consider generosity also works because it's a part of the gospel. God's desire from the beginning has been that we would truly experience abundant life. We've just been talking about it for an hour in Sunday school, just the wonder of living in the presence of God, life with God forever in his presence, showered every moment of every day with the blessing of his face, his goodness, his glory, all that he has just shining upon us. That's his desire to pour out upon us. But sin ruined all of that, didn't it? And our very souls now, as gifts from him, deserve judgment because we've failed to worship God, to give thanks to him as the creator, the giver of every good gift. But if it weren't for his generosity toward us, we would be lost and we would have no hope. But fortunately for us, God is not only rich in cows and hills and stuff, But when the Bible talks about how rich God is, what does it also say? It says he's rich in kindness, forbearance, and patience. He's rich in mercy. And it says he's immeasurably rich in grace, undeserved favor to sinners like you and me. And that richness of God is poured out on us through the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved, he gave his one and only son. And we know that the Lord Jesus left the glories, the riches of heaven to come to earth to pay for our sins. For every time that we have grasped and clung to the stuff of this world as our own, for every time we haven't given thanks to God as the giver of every good gift, for every time we believed the lie that the abundant life would come through an abundance of stuff, for every time that we have failed to be generous and like God with our possessions, for every time that we've been oriented towards self rather than toward God and neighbor. And God has given us his son so that we can be forgiven 
but even more than that. So we can be reconciled, brought into the life that we were made for as the sons and daughters of God and to experience his generosity for all time in abundant life in him. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it to the full. So what is the good life? What is the good life? At its core, the truly good life is life with God. And one day we will experience that in its fullness. The riches of an inheritance of life with God and his people forever in a new heavens and a new earth. That is ours if you are trusting in Christ this morning. But what Jesus has reminded us of this morning also is that life, this good life begins even now. Because God has not only given us his son, he's given us his Holy Spirit who is changing us into self-giving people like our Lord Jesus, isn't he? People who can more and more see everything we have as a gift from God, received with thanksgiving as our Lord Jesus did every moment of every day, and then to take all those things and use them generously for God's glory. Why? So that this world which is full of grasping and clinging and taking, can know the generosity of God that we can enjoy and receive through his salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the picture of your love and grace and generosity. We pray that you would convict us, humble us, help us to repent and turn in faith for how we think about our lives and our stuff, all the things that you have given us. Show us, as we go from here, ways that we can use all that we have and all that we are in gratitude to you for your glory. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.